Hello. Good morning, guys. Good to see you. You braved the rain. You were brave Tucsonans. Look at you. <laughs> we're all so scared of it. I know. Um, it's an amazing thing. Can I, I, so there's a sermon to preach, but I want to take a moment. Can I celebrate something with you guys? So Giving Tuesday was a thing that happened last week, right? Across the nation on a certain day of the year, every year, uh, for at least the last couple, people give to nonprofits. And so uh, we said, that's part of Giving Tuesday. What we said was, you know what, for Giving Tuesday this year, last year you guys gave $6,000, which was incredible. And we said, wow, let's leverage Giving Tuesday to see what we can do for the Mexico trip for building houses in Mexico. And so the goal was $8,000. And we put that in front of you guys as a church and said, as a church, let's see if we can raise $8,000 for the Mexico trip. And you guys doubled that last Giving Tuesday. Isn't that amazing? I think it's very exciting. I I wish you could have been like in the offices or on text messages that were tracking this whole thing. We were like jumping up and down. People were cheering. Youth ministry was ecstatic. Like it's a really big deal. So I just wanted you to hear me celebrate that and to say thank you for the generosity and amazing things. And just know all of that goes towards ministry uh, and the many ways that we want to seek to love people uh, around here. I think it's a beautiful thing. So that's the thing I want to celebrate. Now let's talk about a sermon. <laughs> we're in the midst of this series called Christ-Minded, where we're looking at this passage from Philippians chapter two. And I wanted to open up today by acknowledging that in this world, um, religion's complicated sometimes. Go have a conversation around it with anybody. You'll feel its complexity. And the reason why is because for some people, they've had really good experiences with religion. Some of you in this room, to say the word religion, you've had really good experiences with it. You're like, I love it. I think it's great. This is what this is for me. And then other people have had bad or complicated experiences with it. It makes it harder to talk about. It gets a little bit confusing. At times, what happens is people just don't know like what to trust or who to trust. And so it makes being a church, trying to to be Christians, complicated in moments. But you know, the good news on all of this is that there's there's still one thing, it seems, that that when you survey culture around you, when you talk to people, even in churches in this place, there's still one thing that, that for whatever reason inspires people, that people find themselves admiring, moved by, drawn near. They, they want to explore this. They may say, I've had a complicated moment with this, but I still am, am intrigued and I still like this one thing. And that one thing is Jesus. I don't know if you've noticed this, but people seem to have a lot of issue with religion. But oftentimes when you go to talk about Jesus, people don't have as big of an issue with Jesus. There's still something about Jesus that's absolutely amazing. There's still something about Jesus that pulls us in. And even for the skeptical person, they might say, I don't know about this or this moment in my past or this experience with this person, but I'm intrigued by Jesus. And so what I've come to realize is that, you know, as for churches, for Christians, right, who gather together, the church is absolutely at its best. Church is absolutely at its best when we look like, take on the heart of love like Jesus Christ. We are, we're absolutely at our best in those moments because we're still the thing that's a gift to the world around us. We're still the thing that, that regardless of what your past and your, your experiences with religion are, it still becomes a gift to this world, a gift to the people in this world and draws people near. That's why it's so important to be Christ-minded as a group of people who gather. And I wanna say, and this is so much of what today is about, a big part, of what it is to be Christ-minded is to be people who are characterized by humility. I wanna say that again, because this is is kind of the crux of the day here, is a big part of what it is to be Christ-minded is to be people who value humility. And can I just acknowledge that's not always an easy thing to do. 
I want you to think right now to yourselves. When you think of the word humble, what comes to mind? Don't say it out loud, just think to yourself. What picture comes to mind? What words come to mind? When you think of that word humble, right? What, what is it that starts to pop into your head? And it can be more than one images. I'm not asking you to, to nail it down to one thing. You know, there's a lot that's out there. Several years ago, I had the privilege of taking a group of high school students to Zambia. Uh, and so we, we went there, we partnered with some missionary aviators. And so during the day, during the first part of the day, we were doing kind of maintenance work and cleaning up and painting things and all kinds of stuff around the hangar uh, that was there. And some of the adult volunteers were working on some plans and some other pieces that were there that we brought with us. And then the second half of the day, we would do this kids program for the neighborhood, for the communities. And so kids from the surrounding neighborhoods, the surrounding villages would like come out of the woodwork to be a part of this. It was almost a little overwhelming, like 150 kids would just show up and we would do this on an airstrip, which isn't like a concrete, you know, airstrip. It was grass and, and a long, long straight field uh, that was there. And so we'd all gather on this. Don't worry, no planes landed on any kids. They were fine. Everything was fine. But uh, we, we would gather and we'd do our, our, you know, kids program. So there'd be teaching, there'd be games. Uh, we'd sing songs. There'd be like some kind of activity we all did together. Now at one point, a bunch of kids are playing this game that's like tag some version of tag and it's chaos. Imagine 150 kids playing a singular game of tag, just running amok, right? Absolute chaos. This kid is running uh, and as he's running, he gets a thorn in his foot. Now I need to specify. When I say thorn, you might think like, oh, like a little Palo Verde needle or something, you know, like we think of a thorn. No, like a chunk of wood gets stuck in his foot and he immediately drops to the ground because it hurts. And without skipping a beat, he takes his foot, puts it in his mouth, bites out the thorn, pulls it out. Blood starts to come out of his foot. Like not spurting, we're not talking an artery, right? Just, he's bleeding quite a bit. To the point that like, if this had happened to any of the students in our group, we'd be like, game over, medical emergency. Like we need to patch everybody up. Do you know what I mean? Like that kind of a deal. He doesn't miss a minute. And he gets up and just like, he's like, I'm still in and just starts running off. And I'm watching this and I'm like, wow, that kid's got guts. You know what I mean? Like that kid's got grit. That's amazing. I'm standing next to another adult volunteer who came with us. And she looks and she realizes he doesn't have shoes. That's the reason that he, he got this thorn in his foot. And then she looks around and realizes of all the kids, like almost none of them have any shoes and everybody's running around on this open field. And then she turns to me and she goes, oh man, Ryan, I didn't realize that these kids came from such humble circumstances. There's that word. Humble, derivative of the word humility. And how are we using it in this particular moment? Think of how we're defining that word when we use this in our English language, right? In that particular case, the word humble was used to describe being poor or in need of resources somehow, right? Humble circumstances, another time, another place. I wasn't a pastor at this point. I was working in retail, selling clothes. On this day, I was working in the women's floor. And this woman comes in and she says, I have a special event and I need to buy a dress. And so she's trying on all of these dresses, this other sales associate's helping her out. She's in for like an hour and she's trying on dress after dress. Each time she'd come out of the fitting room, she'd go and stand. There was like a big three-way mirror and a, like a little stool thing in the fitting room. And she'd go stand in front of the three-way mirror. She'd look at herself so she could see the dress and herself from all angles. And then each time, inevitably, she would let out this same kind of expression, just a little bit of exa exasperated. She would go, <sighs> The dress is great, but I look terrible in it. Can I try another one, please? Dress after dress after dress. This goes on for like an hour to where I can tell that the sales associate's starting to get a little bit frustrated. Now, here's the irony of this particular moment. When you look at this person, she is stunning. And this isn't me trying to like build up this person's confidence. 
Have you ever met somebody that when they, when they go shopping or whatever, like they could just go and buy anything straight off the rack in whatever size and way that it's sold and then look like the person in the catalog? Like they look like they're the one it was made for, like that kind of a deal. That's her. In fact, if at any point in time she'd looked at us and said, you know, I'm actually a model, we would have been like, yeah, that makes sense. You know, that's sure, of course. And that's what we would have thought. So the irony is, as she's trying these things all on, she looks like the picture that is sales associates. We were all shown that this is what it's supposed to look like. And we're all like, wow, that one's fantastic. And she goes, oh no, the dress is great, but I look terrible. Next dress. My, the sales associate who's helping her is frustrated, leans over to me at one point in time and goes, you know what her problem is? I said, no, what? She goes, she's, try, she's just trying to be humble and she needs to own what she's got. That's what she said. But there's that word again, humble. Think of how it's being used in this particular instance. In this particular case, hum, humble, humility, is used to describe feeling a sense of lack or an insecurity, right? A lack of self-confidence somehow. That person is humble, a sense of like less thanness in some regard, right? So think of this. Over time, I have come to realize that we in our current modern day we have an issue, we have a problem with the word humility. And what I'm not trying to say right now is y'all are a bunch of arrogant people. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we struggle with the word. We have an issue with the word humility. There's something about our understanding of it that's complicated. We have mixed definitions that we're holding simultaneously. I mean, think of this. Most of us in our heads, if I were to say, can you define humility for me or the word humble for me? You would know some version, so to speak, of, of the English definition. So Oxford Dictionary defines it this way. It says, freedom from pride or arrogance. Humility is freedom for pride or arrogance. Most of you would go, yeah, that's kind of what I thought it was. Right? That, that's how I think of humility. So in one sense, that's a good thing. Most of us in this room, if I were to say, do you want humility? You would be like, well, yeah, I don't want to be seen as prideful or overly arrogant. I want freedom from that thing. Like, yes. And so in that moment, you pull humility close. And I say, but do you want to be poor and lowly? Do you want to be lacking in things? Do you want to come from humble beginnings? Do you want, well, you go, well, well, no, I don't want that. And then the next moment you're going to push humility back. There's these two competing definitions, these two competing understandings that at times we often hold. And then as Christians or in churches, we talk about, man, there's this virtue and it's called humility. Doesn't everybody want it? And you're like, yes, but no. Do you see how it's kind of complicated? Right? It's, it's a little bit interesting. In one moment, we want to pull it close. In the next moment, we want to push it away. Consequently, this makes humility this amazing thing we talk about and not always this thing that we're actually after in our lives. It's got a good side and a bad side to it. Now, you should know that this is not new. The same exact thing was true in the first century, except way worse. Because in the first century, when the New Testament was written, when Jesus is walking around with his disciples, when, when Paul is writing his letters, right? When the gospels are being penned, when all of that is happening, humility had only one understanding and it was an entirely negative one. It was actually a really bad word. The Greek word for humility is the word tapenos. Ready? That's what it is. That's the Greek word for humility. And in that first century, if you heard anybody say that, you would immediately have negative thoughts come to your mind. It meant that somebody was shameful. Somebody was a failure. In fact, contained within the, the root definition of that word itself was the idea of being crushed or debased. So they would have never said, you know what we should all do? Be humble. They, wish, they would say, only if you screw your whole life up. <laughs> Only if you mess everything up, 
then, then yeah, humility is going to find you, but, but it's not something you go looking for. It's not something that you should want. In fact, it wasn't even seen as a virtue, as a positive ethic, or something desirable at all. It was entirely negative. Now, here's what's crazy. I thought, well, sure, from like certain groups and people and things. No, like almost across the board. If you go read through early Greek ethics, which is a, a fun deep dive if you ever want to go do this. Go read through early Greek or Roman ethics. You know what you're not going to find in there? The word tapenos. You're not going to find it in there. It's not going to be there. It's not even listed as something to strive after, as something that you would desire in your life. It's not, it doesn't even make a list, much less have its own place in there. In fact, Instead, if you read early Greek literature, there's a different word that was aspired to. There's a different word that was seen as virtuous. That was seen as like, man, this is what you, you pursue and seek after in your life. This is how you know you're on the right course. That word was philotomia. Philotomia. And what this word ultimately means, it's translated as a love of honor and reputation. So humility is what happens when you have no Philotomia. You push humility aside. You never want that. That's shameful. That's failure. It's bad. It's being crushed. It's being debased. What you're after is honor and reputation. It was Aristotle, right? Famous Greek philosopher and writer that said, honor and reputation were among the most pleasant of things to attain in this life. This is what you set your course after. This is virtue. This is ethic. So life was about doing great things. And the evidence that you had done great things was that people around you praised you and esteemed you and said, look how great you are. And the moment that that happened and you had merit, you were then, it was actually seen as a very positive thing to go, look at all the great things that I've done. And so you could actually, if, as long as you, it was true and it happened, you, you could look up and I could stand in front of you guys. Do you guys want to know how great I am? And I could start telling you and you wouldn't look at that and be like, how arrogant is he? You would look at that and go, how virtuous is he? How amazing is he? How ethical is he? Being praised by others was a sign you were doing it right. Humility, humility was a sign that you had failed or that you were shameful somehow. To the point that Caesar Augustus, emperor of Rome, he wrote a list, this like document with a list of all of his accomplishments. He had this thing that he wrote himself inscribed in bronze and it was to be put for the future in front of his mausoleum, which is like his future tomb. So Caesar writes his own kind of like, you know, epitaph, so to speak, that's going to go on there that people are going to read. And he lists out all of his accomplishments. They all get etched in bronze. And when he writes them, he also writes this. He says, he says that I have received honor that up to the present day has been decreed to no one besides myself. And this honor has been given me by the Senate and the people of Rome on account of my courage, clemency, justice, and piety. Now, if you're lost in history and language, let me give you the brief synopsis of what he's actually saying so that this thing sinks in. What he's saying is, I have done more and been better than all who came before me and everyone knows it. Put that in front of my tomb. Carve it in bronze. And essentially everybody would have looked and been like, that's virtue. That's what you strive after. That's a sign of a good, meaningful life. He, he's saying what he did and he's bragging about it and he's, he's got the merit behind it and people have recognized him. Like, that's, that is good. This is what we want. This is how this thing should go. Now, if that doesn't sink in, can you imagine if you went to the Lincoln Memorial, right? This, which if you've never seen it, maybe you've seen a picture of it, if you've never been to it, giant statue of Abraham Lincoln seated in a chair. And I want you to imagine that you walk up to this giant statue of our former president and you look above him and, he, and it says, you should honor me 
I deserve honor because I have done more and been better than all who have come before me and everyone knows it. Signed, Abe Lincoln. We'd have an issue with honest Abe, wouldn't we? At that particular moment. We wouldn't be looking at that being like, that's really positive. I'm glad that we've put that there and that it stood over this, you know, stood over time. We would look and be like, what an arrogant thing to put on that is the way that we'd see this. But in the first century, that's not true. That's not how they'd see it. This was completely and utterly normalized. In fact, this wasn't just normal. This was what was good. This was virtue. We might cringe, but for the Greeks, merit deserved honor. And if you had merit, it was only natural that you would praise yourself and expect others to praise you too. This is virtue. So now imagine, knowing all of that, imagine Jesus is walking around with 12 disciples and that's how they understand the word humility. You think about this? Imagine knowing all of that, that as Paul goes to write his letters to the various churches, for many of them, that's how they understood the word humility. That's what was normal. Humility was a bad thing based on failure and shame. And what you wanted was recognition. What you wanted was honor and reputation. What you wanted is to do things that allowed you to stand in the public square and esteem yourself. And that that was virtue. That's what they saw. And now imagine... If you can imagine how complicated that all is, now imagine what it, was, what it would have been like to have Jesus come along and teach you things like what we read here in Matthew chapter 20, beginning at verse 25. It says this, but Jesus called them to him. These are his followers. And he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, right? Philotimia, that's what this is. This is the virtue. Verse 26, Jesus says, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus looks at his followers and goes, I fully recognize that all around you, starting from Caesar Augustus to everyone on down, that everybody thinks that the thing you're supposed to do with your life is to build merit so that you can praise yourself and be praised by others so that you can just continue to have higher and higher levels of honor and reputation and that that's what you're supposed to be after. That's what's true. That's what's around us. That's what all the leaders and people around you are modeling and doing. And Jesus says what? It should look different among you. I want you to do something different. He says, it shall not be so among you. It's as though Jesus is looking at them. He's saying, I want you to be the kind of people who serve others in a way that lifts them up. And then the example that he uses, right? The very example that he uses is he says, for what? I, I did not come to, to keep my life, but to give it as a ransom for many. So what's he saying? Jesus is saying, you know, I, I want you to lift other people up the same way that I'm gonna do. Because after all, Jesus did not die of like old age on a throne. He died on a cross, serving others, but doing what? Lifting us all up. And he says, this is what I want you to look like. This is what I want your life to look like. Now in Jesus' day, there were three ways that you could be publicly executed. Right, so if you've done something wrong, if you went through trial, public execution had three basic options. You could be decapitated, not great. You could be burned alive, also not great. Or you could be crucified. Those were the three. Now of the three ways to die, crucifixion was seen as the most shameful and humiliating of all of them. So when they chose to crucify Jesus, when the crowd begins to chant, crucify him, crucify him, this has specific intent. They're not just saying kill Jesus. They're saying, and do it in a way that you humble him. Do it in a way that you put him up there and the world can see his humility. This is also why when Jesus hung upon a cross, they put a thing in front of him that said what? 
king of the Jews, right? Not because they're praising him as the king of the Jews, but because they're humbling him. They're humiliating him. They're showing the shame that's been cast upon him. This is why when Jesus hung upon a cross and, and carried his cross, he had a crown of thorns placed upon his head as if to say, look at this king of kings now, right? Why? Because there was shame attached to this. There was embarrassment. They were trying to humble Jesus. Jesus was a model of what we would look at or what the first century, I'm sorry, would look at and see humility The thing you don't ever want because it's a failure point. It's shameful and it's embarrassing. Jesus on the cross becomes this great moment of humility. And they did this on purpose because they didn't want anyone else to follow in his stead. They're trying to just shut this whole thing down. So let's humiliate him and make an example of him. But something unique happens here. Something really, really interesting happens here where all of a sudden a whole group of people witness this experience and what they see isn't necessarily embarrassment and shame, but they see something beautiful in Jesus' life and the way that he lived and ultimately in his death upon the cross. When they see Jesus, this turns the whole understanding of humility upside down because they now go, well, sure, he's, he's humble, but I don't see shame. I don't see embarrassment. I see love. I don't see him trying to like, you know, like just decimate himself. I see him lifting us all up. And this group of people began to look at this thing and say, I think we need an entirely new definition for the word humility. I think there's something else that's happening here. And so the early church writers began to use it. And Paul begins to talk about humility as a virtue, as something good. And yet they're still holding these two definitions in that moment. They're saying there's this definition of what it is to be Christ-minded and hold this amazing kind of humility that isn't about being ashamed and humiliated and embarrassed or low in that regard. It's about lifting others up even if you have to make yourself low along the way. And this changes the definition for culture at large. We are sitting here thinking about humility the way that we do because this happened 2,000 years later. Do you understand how profound that is? The impact that this moment had, the cross and the life of Christ flipped humility on its head as suddenly what it meant to be Christian and humble took on something so incredibly different. And what I love is that Jesus didn't just change the definition, but change the way that we're to approach humility altogether. These past three weeks, we've been reading through Philippians, right? Philippians chapter two. First week, we looked at verses one and two. The next week, Glenn looked at at verse two. And today we're going to look at verses three and four. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. I love this passage because what Paul does here is he articulates this new kind of humility. And he doesn't just tell you like, hey, be humble and then leave you to yourself to do it. He actually begins to describe the way as followers of Christ, the way as a church who wants to be Christ-minded that we can approach this and move towards it. And I think that makes it an absolute gift for us who read it today. So let's read it together. Philippians chapter two, beginning at verse three. Paul writes, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Verse four, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's a short passage. I want to read it again. Just think on the words. If you're just waiting for me to get through the reading of the moment, like, no, like consider what Paul's saying, knowing all that you now know about the first century. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Okay, so let's, let's pay attention to what he's doing there in verse three. Let's think on this for two seconds. He writes, do 
nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Some of your Bibles will say vain conceit. So again, this is Paul saying, look, it's kind of him acknowledging, I know that the status quo around you, that the way everybody operates around you is that you would pursue your own selfish kind of ambition. You would stand in vain conceit, like that this would be seen as virtuous and honorable, that, that these things would be there. And he goes, I don't want you to do any of that though. In fact, he, he doesn't just go like, hey, consider not doing it or hey, maybe avoid it. He goes, do nothing like that, right? When you read the word selfish ambition, it's actually the Greek word erethe. And it's more than just ambition. That's why they include the word selfish. It's actually all one word. The adjective selfish isn't actually in the text. And the reason they include this in there is because contained within Erethea is a kind of ambition that has a party spirit to it, like, when, like your clique, your group, your party, or a rivalry spirit to it. And so what he's saying when he says, don't do anything out of selfish ambition, is he's actually, and he uses that word Erethea, he's saying, don't build up you and your premise and your group for the, at, this, at the cost of lowering somebody else. Don't try to build yourself higher and lower everybody else that's in here. You know, Erethea, when we think of this, is you ever had that moment where your group of friends or someone else's group of friends forms into like cliques? or groups of people that become very insular. And then all of a sudden, for whatever reason, this group of friends or this group of people doesn't like the other group of people and is trying to advocate and, and talk about how bad they are when they're not around as if to try to like win and elevate, right? There's this rivalry to the whole thing. This happens in workplaces. This happens in families. This happens with friendships. That's Erethea. That's that selfish ambition that, that, that he's talking about. It's an example of that. You ever been in the workplace and two people are up for the same promotion who were fine with each other before and then all of a sudden they start tearing each other down or secretly wishing something bad would happen to the other person so that they can get the promotion or something like that? That's Erethea. That's this selfish ambition where you're trying to inflate yourself and lower somebody else, right? The thing we currently see in politics is so much Erethea that's all around us. It's when one group is vying and contending to be dominant over the other by elevating them and decreasing the other person, right? In all of this, this is what Paul's talking about. And what does he say? He's like, so just be conscious of it. No. So, you know, think on it. No. Or, hey, maybe don't step into this. No. He says, have nothing to do with it. Get out of there is what he says. You know, the other word that he uses gets translated as conceit. Again, some of your Bibles say vain conceit. And this is when the kind of conceited when, when you don't really have a good enough reason to be conceited. And I think the reason Paul includes it here is if you look back at verse one, he talks about all the amazing things that Christ has done in and through each of us. And then I think he's saying, if that's what Christ is doing in you, what do you have to brag about? What is it that you're bragging about? In the end, all of this points back to the goodness and the grace and the power and the love of Jesus. It's flowing in and through you. Let that be your enough. You don't need to build up all the rest of this so that everybody else is gonna esteem and praise and all the things for you. Just let that be your enoughness here, right? That's the other word that he's using. I remember when I was in college, I was sitting in the dorms and this was an all guys dorm. There's this big lounge in the middle. Sometimes we'd all gather in there and just kind of hang out. So I'm in there with about 10 people and I'm sitting on this bench couch thing next to my, my roommate and one of our friends is talking. And as this friend is talking, he starts to talk about this test that he, or this paper that he had just written and they just gotten the papers back in their class. The professor, you know, dished these things back out. We were all in our graduating year for the most part at this point in time. Most of us are graduating seniors and we're in that last semester kind of trying to make our way through. And the friend, as he's talking about this paper, he, he says, you know, the, the professor actually used my paper as an example for like what to do, like as a good grade on this because everyone else failed it. 
in this class. And I was like, wow, that's crazy. Well, good for you, man. And then he laughs. And he's like, I don't understand what the big deal was. It was just like a basic paper. And it was like a basic paper that everybody else just sort of failed. And he's like, well, yeah, you know, it's, it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't that hard. It wasn't that big of a deal. I don't like, you know, it's just, I don't know. And then he shifts the conversation to how he found out through this professor and through this day that he's actually the second in our class, second highest GPA, grade average in our class. And I said, well, who's number one? And he goes, I don't, I don't know. He just told me that I'm the, I'm the second. He goes, you know, I kind of hope that the, the first person like gets sick or falls or hurts himself somehow or like gets a bad grade on something so that I can be valedictorian. And then I paused again and was like, so you, and I'm laughing, kind of like ironically, where I'm going like, so you, gen, you're like your take on this is you want this person to have, you want something bad to happen to this person so that they will be lower so that you can slide in as the valedictorian. Like that's what you're after right now. And I'll never forget his response because I thought he was going to joke and be like, no, that's not really what I want. And he goes, well, I deserve it. Yeah, see the way you feel? That's how I felt right there in that particular moment. He's like, well, I deserve it. He's like, I've taken a bunch of really hard courses and different things. And you know, he's pro- this person's probably taken like a bunch of, you know, easy courses or different things to overinflate their GPA so none of us can catch it. And at this point, I'm kind of repelled by the conversation, if I'm honest. You ever have that moment where you're talking to somebody and you're like, I think there's no room in this room for anybody but your own head, so I need to back out? It's kind of how that felt. It was like the negative sides of magnets coming together where something's like pushing me out of the room and just, I had to pause, guys, and remind myself that I've had tons of experiences with this individual that was talking that never felt or looked like any of this and that I liked them and they were my friend. Otherwise, I probably would have been like, I think I'm gonna go spend time with other people forever. Do you know what I mean? It's just the feeling that I have. My roommate and I, we get up, we go walking back down the hall and I look at him and I'm just like, I wonder where our valedictorian's gonna be. And my roommate goes, yeah, I don't know. Well, I guess we'll have to wait and see what happens on graduation day. We'll know then. I said, yep. Fast forward, graduation day happens. I go walking into the building uh, where we're all getting ready to go, you know, like go out and be a part of the ceremony. And I go walking up to my roommate and his sash is a different color than mine. He was valedictorian of our class and he knew it. And I looked at him and I'm like, are you, are you the valedictorian? And he says, yes, now we should pause. He is my roommate. He is my friend. He also is my cousin, you guys. This is family. Like I didn't know any of this and spent a ton of time with this particular human being. Like we were very close. And I'm just like, what? Why didn't you tell me? He's like, I don't know. I just didn't, you know, didn't want to make a big deal out of it. And then I remembered that conversation. And I was like, we both sat together with all those 10 people in that room while he basically talked about wishing something bad would happen to you and you said nothing. And I'm totally trying to provoke him, right? In this particular moment, I was like, why didn't you say anything? And he just looks at me, he's like, I don't know. I didn't want to make it a big deal. And the semester wasn't over yet. So we didn't really know who was going to be the valedictorian. Now, here's what I know about my former roommate here. He studied like crazy, worked like crazy. But here's what I know is the truth about him. He, he didn't really care about what number he came in on this particular moment. So he was studying applied linguistics and biblical languages so that he could become a Bible translator. And he was genuinely nervous most of the time that he was gonna end up in a place that had not enough resources so that he wasn't gonna have like a library available or Wi-Fi or internet. And so he was like, I need to have things up here so that I can do this well because I'm just worried about that. So he just worked his butt off. Now, if I had said like, and it, and it was because he, he wanted to go into ministry and love people really well. He would never tell you any of that. He'd never say any of that, but I watched it happen all the time. So let's pause. Those are two human beings that you know very little about, 
both of whom were studying to go into full-time ministry. They wanted to lead and love people in one capacity or another. Can I ask you the question, which of them do you wanna follow? Think about it. Which of them do you find yourself leaning in and going, I don't know, I, I trust that person. Which of them, even if you're not, they're not leading you somehow, how, which of them are you going like, well, I, I wanna spend time with, I, I wanna open my life to that person. I wanna go where they're going. I wanna be a part of what they're doing. Which of them do you find yourself moving towards and which of them do you find yourself like me, like a negative magnet, just pushing me back? Do you see how important it is <laughs> when Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do you see why this matters? Do you see not just in your own personal life, but when he writes a letter to a church, to a group of people who follow Christ, why this matters so much? Do you see this? Because it's a really big deal. So he says, don't do this. And then he goes, but here's what I want you to do. And then he has the audacity to say the word, you guys, which I know we don't think is a big deal. First century would have lost their minds. He goes, don't do these two things. Okay, cool, what do we do? And then he just says it, but in humility, pause. They all would have been looked like, they all would have stopped and been like, no. They would have stopped and been like, I think he got the wrong word. I think we translated this wrong. I think we did this wrong. He's telling us to go do the thing that we've avoided our entire lives. He's going and he's telling us to do the thing that everybody else associates with failure, shame, and embarrassment, and humiliation. Like he, he's telling us to go do this thing that we all think of as really negative and he's now talking about it like it's positive and yet he says it right there. But just in case you're curious, in humility. What's the key ingredient? In humility. There's that word. He says, count others as more significant than yourselves. Count others as more significant than yourselves. I sat in a small group at one point. There's a group of us all sitting around and we're talking. And one of the gentlemen in the small group, and he's just having a, a very candid moment of vulnerability. He said, you know, I, I would love for you guys to pray for me. He goes, I've really been struggling with pride lately. And I know that's weird to talk, but I know it. And we're like, well, what, is, what do you mean? How does, what's that look like? And he goes, well, I have found myself judging people a lot lately. And most of the time it's because I look at like the way they're living their life or what they're doing or thinking or saying. And I just find myself going, I would never do that. And part of me just thinks I know I'm better than them. And so there's just, it's hard. I, I just feel arrogant and I judge them in that moment. And so I'm struggling with pride. Like I'm just battling that. I don't, I don't want this, but this keeps happening. You know, that, that type of a deal. I think if some of us were honest, most like, actually, if most of us were honest, you might find that that's not so shocking. You could even relate to that in certain moments, depending on your situations. And so somebody else says, so what are you doing about that? Like, yeah, we'll pray for you. We'd love to, but how's that going for you? And he said, well, there's this thing I'm trying. So every morning I wake up, he said, every morning I wake up and just as a way of like combating this or trying to work on this, he says, I wake up and I say out loud, this is the way that I start my day. He says, I say out loud, I'm a no good, terrible sinner and I would be nothing without Jesus Christ. And my eyes got so wide when he said that. That's how he starts his day. That's all I could think of. I'm like, that's your Folgers. Like that's your morning cup. Like that's the beginning process for your day. I'm a no good, terrible sinner and I would be absolutely nothing without Jesus. That's what he says. And, and my eyes got even wider because the rest around the group, people were like, yes, like affirming that and saying, yeah, you, that's, that's an amazing thing to do. And I didn't know what to, I didn't know how to move on from this particular moment because I had a lot of questions. And so I, I just looked at the individual, this gentleman, and I said, so you do this every morning to start your day. And he said, yeah, I just want to make sure I wake up and I start my day with the truth as opposed to leaning into my pride. 
And I said, so for you, when you recognize or when you think that Jesus loves you, right? That he then wants you to wake up each day and tell yourself that you're no good, terrible sinner and would be nothing without him. And that that's how he wants you to start your day because he loves you. We had a really long discussion about all of this with a lot of confusion along the way. But I wanna take a moment with you all and be really candid with you about something. Friends, I just want you to know, there's no way that Jesus wants you to live out of an identity that you are a no good, terrible sinner. Now, do not get me wrong. Each and every single one of us in here sin. Each and every one of us in here make mistakes. Each and every one of us in here have sin and moments and things in our life. That is a real thing. That is part of what it is to be human. But I have zero belief that Jesus wants any one of you out of the love that he has for you to wake up with your identity rooted in that you are a no good, terrible sinner. When we talk about having our identity anchored in who? Christ. What do we mean when we say that? Think about this. When we talk about now our identity is anchored in Jesus Christ, not because of what we did, but because of what, who he is and what he did. When we wake up in the mornings, friends, you wake up every single day as a child of God. You wake up as loved by Jesus. This is so incredibly significant. And let me, let me just say for two reasons why this is significant. One, if you believe that, if that's what you anchor your identity in, then you cannot be surprised if you go about living your life where the chief struggle of your life is sin. And it's probably gonna be the same sin over and over again because like a self-fulfilling prophecy, you believe that's who you are. You'll live it. You'll just continue to live that peace out. And that is really problematic because all that does is then up heaping up more humiliation and shame. But there is now no condemnation in Jesus and we are free in him. This is different, friends. And the second piece, the second reason why this is really tough is because if, if that's the view that you hold, if that's the way you approach your identity as far as who you actually are, well, then you're, you're just stepping right over. You're negating the fact that at the very moment of your creation, you were made in the very image of God, that there was something good and innate and beautiful that exists within you even still. And that that's right there. Can I just tell you, Jesus didn't die for trash. He died for what he treasured. It's you. It's you. It's all of you. It's me. I don't think the love of Christ bids you to wake up each day and tell yourself that you're a no good, dirty sinner. I think the love of Christ bids you to wake up each day and say, I have the fullness and the grace of Jesus Christ. What's my day gonna look like? And that anchors you and roots you in. But so often what we think of is we think the answer to seeking humility and combating pride is to somehow debase ourselves. That is a Greek definition. That is a different, that, that's an old way of thinking about this thing. That's not, is that, let me ask you, is that what you see in Christ? that he sought to debase himself? No, he never stopped being anything less than the son of God, but because he treasured something, he served and lifted it up. He made himself low, not for the sake of it, but because of what mattered most. So listen to what Paul's saying here when he says, rather in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. He transforms humility here in a really beautiful way, friends. Greek humility was being a failure, taking on shame and becoming less than, but Christ-minded humility isn't the practice of making yourself less. This might be the main point for the message here today. Christ-minded humility isn't the practice of making yourself less. Christ-minded humility is living in a way that lifts others up. And if that means you need to make yourself a little less along the way, then go chase your treasure. Then go love people. Do you see the difference? This reshapes humility from the lens of human history 
I want you to think about it. When that gentleman in that small group was trying to be humble, he stood there just trying to make himself less, but he's still staring at the same image in the mirror. You know the complexity in this? So often what we do is we'll find somebody who's struggling with lack of self-esteem or insecurity or whatever that thing is. And, and they'll like, like imagine they're standing in a clothing store, so to speak, this is a good illustration. And they'll look and say, man, I look terrible. And then what will everybody do? Or I'm ugly or I'm horrendous. And then what will everyone do? You're amazing. You're beautiful. You're incredible. Like, no, look at all these amazing qualities about you. Okay, now imagine they step back out of the fitting room and they're like, I am stunning and gorgeous and amazing. Everyone else is gonna be like, who does she or he think he is? We have this weird thing where we're like, well, if you're struggling to be low, prescribe pride. And then the moment you get prideful, cut your legs back out from underneath you and enjoy the loop of your life. Christian humility is where you stop looking at yourself in the mirror altogether because there's someone else that you love and that matters more. And so you look at them and you say, I actually wanna lift them up. And along the way, what happens is something begins to change and transform inside of you. This is what we see modeled and lived out and challenged to in Jesus Christ. This is what we see Paul calling us back to, reminding us of again. What was Christ's goal? For God so loved the world that he then did this, that he then sent his son. You, you were his goal. And because of you, he made himself low. Not just for the sake of it, not because it's what real spirituality looks like. It's because it's necessary in loving people sometimes. It's real humility. See, because of Jesus, humility is no longer connected to shame and failure. It's connected to love. It's connected to who and how you love. That's how this thing shakes out. And so we don't have to pull humility close in one second and then push it away in the next because we're holding two definitions. We get to be reminded of Christ on the cross and say that is power and that is love and the way that he lived his life. And I want my life to follow in the same stead. And so rather than staring at myself in the mirror, I'm gonna go find someone to make my treasure. And I'm gonna love and serve. And I'm gonna find humility along the way. We don't have to try to diminish. When you lift other people up, it just, humility begins to just happen, friends, for you. And it becomes a beautiful thing. So I wanna leave you with two challenges before I go here. Uh, just because I know some of you are like, cool, how do you make this practical? <laughs> two challenges. Paul says to count others as more significant than yourselves, right? So I wanna challenge you to this. Make other people your treasure. I don't know who it will be. I don't know who it is. I don't know. You could start in this room. You could look around you. You could start in your offices and your families and your community. You could get weird at the grocery store. I don't know. You could do whatever. But I want you to look at somebody and ask yourself the question, if I saw that person as my treasure, if I saw that person as someone that I treasured and cared about, what would I do? What would I say right now? If that's how I saw them, what would I say? How would I act? You know, I treasure my kids. I do. And so consequently, I have altered my life and made myself low in ways that I just never really thought I would do in this life. I have had like weird dance parties to stupid girl music. That, and if you love girl music, I'm sorry. But like, there's just, you just have to understand there's moments where I'm like hearing a song and I'm like, please don't ask me to do this. Please don't ask me to do this. And they're like, will you do this? And I'm like, sure, because I'm your dad and I love you. I have made myself low and weird. I have driven to games and places. I've altered my own accommodation schedule and, and outcomes in life. Why? Not because I was like, because that's spiritual growth. No, because they're my treasure. And I want to lift them up, even if that means I need to make myself a little lower at times, because I want to see that happen. I want to see that good come about. That's how God views each and every one of us. 
Like the way I view my kids, what would happen if you opened your eyes and you saw the people around you that way? What would you step into? What would it change about you? You know what I promise you you'll find is that a little bit of humility begins to grow in you without you even realizing it. Because it's how it works. And here's the second challenge. It's this. He says, look not only to your own interests, but consider the interests of others. So the second challenge is really plain. It's just this, look out for the desires of others. Somebody earlier asked me, what do you mean by desires? Like cheesecake? And I'm like, no, not like cheesecake. So if you're like, well, I'm gonna go get people the thing they most desire, like a craving. Let me just specify. It's not what I'm getting at. (laughs) I think God is doing unique things in each and every person's life. I think each of us have our own issues and struggles and things that we wrestle with. I think each of us through the sum total of all of that bring good and beautiful desires to our life. Sometimes in through difficulty, sometimes through the great beauty. You ever been in that moment where somebody only talks about themselves for like an hour of a conversation and then it's over and you're like, cool, see you next time. Don't be that person. It's all, I think it's a really practical way of saying it. Just be, when you go in, ask them questions. And if it gets quiet, ask them another question. Figure out what they care about. Figure out what God's doing in them. Figure out why they care and, and what matters to them and what they're going through and let their desires have a seat at the table. And when your eyes are opened, when Paul uses the word look, it's actually the word look out for. Like when you scan the horizon, when you search something out, sometimes we don't love because we don't look. Open your eyes to look. And when you see the person, make space in your heart to care make space in your life to love and step in and give them a seat or some room at the table or some place in your life and what you will find is you try to practically love them in the midst of what they're after of what they're wrestling through and they're caring about is that you're amazed by that and a little bit of humility begins to rise within you you don't have to cut yourself off at the knees and you don't have to prescribe pride you've just got to love other people like Christ loves other people And it becomes a powerful transformational process for each and every one of us, friends. You'll find humility isn't something that you have to strive for. It's something that comes to you. And so I just want you to know that's really good news because it means that the thing that the world around you still finds most compelling is the thing you get to bring to it. The thing that the world around you craves and needs and wants for their own life and that experience of love and that experience of who is this Jesus and what does this mean for me? You now bear this good and beautiful gift. Can I challenge you? Go and give it away. Let's pray. God, we come before you today in humility is tough. It is, Lord. Sometimes it can feel like this thing that we're powerless to change. And let Lord, yeah, Lord, I'm thankful that you give us a path. I'm thankful that you rewrote human history as far as definitions and words go and infused them with a the kind of power. Thank you for the cross and thank you for the way that you, Jesus, just modeled that in love for us. I'm amazed by it, Lord. Out of that, God, open our eyes to the people in our lives that, that are there to be our treasures the way you treasure them. Help us to love them. And God, we ask that you make us humble, that you make us Christ-like as we seek to take on the mind of Christ and be your church. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.